The Tom Woods Show, episode 1404. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I absolutely love my beautiful movement watch. It's the kind of accessory that tells the world this person is well put together. You are going to love looking at their huge selection of beautiful styles. And take 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com woods. That's 15% off at mvmt.com woods. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. Got a great book to tell you about, and it's a book you can get for free. If you like the electronic version, you can get that for free. You can also buy the paper copy on Amazon. The book is Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies by Christian Nemitz, who is the head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the author of several other books, including A New Understanding of Poverty and Redefining the Poverty Debate. This is really a tremendous book, though, Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies. It really, really is a tremendous book, and I endorse it wholeheartedly. Very interesting. I mean, he's kind of focusing in on the claim that all these terrible examples of socialism in history weren't real socialism, but there's so much more to the book than just that, and I'm just delighted to be able to talk to him. Christian, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. I am a big, big fan of this book. The beginning of it is written from a UK perspective in terms of the polling data about people's opinions. But I would say if you adjusted the pro-socialist views downward by 10 to 15 percentage points, you, you could substitute an American audience there, especially given the direction things are moving in. When did you decide to start in on this project? Because it, the timing at this moment certainly seems pretty darn good. I think I first had the idea when this surge of the radical left started here, when it came back. It was, uh, I've long had the idea that banging on about socialism, even though until about four years ago, this sounded a bit outdated. I've long thought that it actually does make sense because once you've cleared up what's wrong with socialism, it then becomes easier to explain what's wrong with milder forms of interventionism. You can then say, and to a lesser extent, this also applies to this form and that form of interventionism, if not uh, to the same degree. And then events sort of overtook me. Then socialism itself had made a full-blown comeback. And uh, I realized, right, it now actually makes sense to address socialism heads-on, not just as a, a theoretical extreme from which uh, you can then adjust your arguments downwards, but as a topic in its own right. This started with, I think, a little blog piece or a little video, can't, can't quite remember, some relatively minor publication on uh, on socialism, which then went viral on social media. And then I realized, oh, there, there is a demand for this. I'll extend it into a paper and then uh, became a longer paper and, and eventually became a book. Later in the book, you have a three-stage process by which, let's say, sympathetic opinion will observe the development of a socialist state. First, you say there's the honeymoon period. Oh, look at all the advances that are taking place. And as you say, it's quite possible that there could be some advances. And and I've always said, especially when dealing with even just large welfare states, if the state takes that many resources, yeah, it's bound to do something good with it by accident even. Of course you're going to get some medical care. If, if it's taking half the national product, of course you're going to get something. Something. 
So, yeah. all right. So that that gets summed up in the honeymoon period. Then you have the the period where things start going a little sour, and so opinion becomes defensive, and then they they want to turn things around. If you, the, these people who are critical of this society, well, they are disreputable people. And then finally, the third and final stage is well. Was this really socialism after all? And it just happens again and again. Yeah, that's uh, that's the frustrating thing. I've been debating socialism for 20 years or so, and uh, it's always the thing that as soon as you come up with a real-world example, every socialist will respond, oh, come on, you're being silly. Obviously, I'm not talking about that, not that kind of socialism. That wasn't socialism at all. And uh, I started looking at the history of this uh, a little bit long, long before I had the idea for this book and, and found that... Actually, that that wasn't always so. It's it is the case that these arguments, uh, this isn't real socialism, that was a distortion, and so on. This always comes after the event. Once a socialist example has already been widely discredited, you, you will hardly ever find somebody making that argument as long as a socialist project is in its prime. And uh, yeah, in the process of, of writing the book, I found that almost all of them have had a period during which. They had some initial achievements, or at least seemed to have them, had a relatively high international standing. And during those periods, they were always widely praised and endorsed and uh, waxed lyrical about by plenty of prominent Western intellectuals. I want to ask uh, before we I, – I definitely want to get into some of the specific places that you cover here. But I want to ask if we can think out loud a bit about whether socialists could come back at us with the same kind of argument and say – well, you people are always saying that we don't have real capitalism. And so every time we try to criticize capitalism, you say it's not real capitalism. My partial response to that is that it's true, first of all, that we have mixed economies. We don't genuinely have real capitalism. But at the same time, we do have elements of the kind of system that we favor. The very fact that we have a stock market reminds us that we have private property in the means of production. So we have elements of our system. And so therefore, to the extent that we have those elements, we do have good results that we can point to. But to the extent that we have opposing elements, we have bad results. And so I think we can give a fairly nuanced response as opposed to, well, that's not real capitalism. That's not real capitalism because that, that's all we get from these people. Nothing was ever. So if, that, if nothing is ever real socialism, then doesn't that itself – if not refute the system, at least raise questions in your mind. Can this system never be implemented then? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, ideas, ideas, political theories, economic theories are never implemented in pure form. That's true of socialism, of capitalism, of any other, uh, of, of theocratic systems. That's, that's true of anything. But uh, the big difference between the people on our side who would say that's not real capitalism and the socialist who says that's not real socialism is, as you alluded to, uh, is that we accept approximations. We would at least say, right, this is two-thirds of what I want. This is 80% of what I want. We can identify approximations, systems that we consider quite good. It's, it's not that we're measuring socialism by unrealistically high standards. You could say that a socialist who argues that, for example, East Germany wasn't real socialism – would have to concede that it was a lit, at least a little bit closer to real socialism, whatever that, that is, than West Germany. So the question is, is not, we're not asking them why was this not a perfect utopia. We're asking them why was it so much worse than West Germany? Why did they have to build the wall and uh, not the other way around? That's the comparison. And of course, West Germany wasn't real capitalism either. I grew up in West Germany. I guess we could record a show 
of of its own, talking about the many things that that are going wrong there. But of course, if I had a choice between West Germany and and the old East Germany, I know which cho- which one I would choose. No doubt. Now let's now that you mentioned that, let's go into some of the specifics. You cover in here quite a number of of horror stories from the communist period, so the Soviet Union, China under Mao in particular, then Cuba, North Korea, Cambodia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the way you've organized several of these sections, the same themes appear, and the themes that I have in mind are. There are always pilgrims, let's say, uh, useful idiots from the West who will go over and visit and then report that things are all right. You know, th- not only are they all right, they're, they're wonderful. Or even today about some of these places, you can still find people who are trying to say that Mao wasn't really responsible for what went wrong and the right wing is making these stories up and it's all exaggerated. And you can find today too people who say that the Ukrainian famine – is unjustly blamed on the Soviets. Over and over, you can still hear this. So give us some examples of those two phenomena. Yeah, right. I mean, there is, there is always this period when Western pilgrims travel to these places, and it's happened in all of them. And I try to concentrate on well-established respected mainstream academics, because otherwise it would be easy for a critic of the book to say, well, you're cherry picking if you're atypical examples that you really cannot do. I'm picking out specifically people like Noam Chomsky, where, where no one could say this is some some outlier. Uh, Noam Chomsky is clearly a rock star intellectual and, and has been for many decades, uh, an iconic figure on the left. And um, there's plenty of people who had a similarly iconic status at least for a while. The names might not be remembered very well, but they they were big fish uh, at least at the time of writing. And it is always some you, you can always find some fairly big names among those pilgrims. And of course, the, the pilgrims are um, the one end of a spectrum. They are the extreme step down from that. You you can find fellow travelers who would not have gone all the way there, who, who would not have said this is a paradise in the making, but who would still have said, well, yeah, this is on balance, uh, they're, they're doing the right thing, and this is something promising. And Noam Chomsky is in two chapters. He's one of those uh, repeat pilgrims. He was in the 70s, he was one of the people who tried to downplay the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. So he was not, I wouldn't say he was an admirer of that, regime. He doesn't actively praise them, but he does downplay the atrocities that they committed or tries to shed doubt and discredit uh, refugees who were talking about these things, the sources of information that critics of that regime in the West had. And then he appears again in the Venezuela chapter because he was one of the early uh, admirers of Chavez. He traveled there in, I think, 2007 when, when their economy was still booming, in this case due to an oil price boom. And uh, said, this is wonderful. I can see how a better world is being created here. And now he says, oh, no, I never described Venezuela as socialist. So this is this this process that I'm describing. You get uh, people praising it for a while and then backpedaling, rowing back and um, claiming that that place, whatever the utopia du jour is, was just never socialist. Often it's because a new generation of socialists have grown up. They may have no memory of that. For them, this is this is uh, something that happened in the past. But sometimes it's the same people who said one thing then and who say something completely different now. Chomsky is one of them. Do you mind if I ask how old a guy you are? I'm 38. 
Okay, so you're a relatively young guy. I'm just wondering how much of this you lived through and you observed yourself. Uh, because oh, there are, no. yeah, so there are fewer and fewer people who have firsthand uh, recollection of this. And then we see things like this really demoralizing report just a few weeks ago saying that the popularity of Stalin in Russia today is at an all-time high. How do we account for something like that? Okay, I don't know enough about Russia, but my guess from what I do know would be that this is not so much about socialism. This is mostly about nationalism. This is simply, this is not Stalin, the socialist, Stalin, the man of the five-year plans, but uh, Stalin in the sense of a strong leader and uh, some somebody who his enemies uh, were terrified of. And, um, well, a bit like... Uh, like a very masculine figure, and uh, it, it will be more a form of of nationalistic hero worship than socialism. I mean, we can see this to a much much lesser degree in the in the nostalgia that still exists in Eastern Germany. There, you get sometimes uh, the people on the on the far left here cite those surveys where whatever, 50, 60 percent of, of of East Germans say they have positive memories of of the GDR, saying, "Ah, look." These people regret it. They want the GDR back. Maybe they were against it at the time, but looking back, they actually like it. Yeah, well, not really. What happens there is often that uh, there, there are people who idolize or who romanticize some aspects of the system as it was, but that's not necessarily the socialist aspects. So this uh, nostalgia isn't necessarily socialist. In the case of, of Eastern Germany in particular, a lot of that is actually has to do with the fact that uh, firstly the GDR was very much a law and order state, and uh, also that it had very little immigration. Well, being being socialist, uh, of course, it doesn't. It, it was not a magnet for migrants in in the, in the way West Germany was, and um, this is one of, one of the reasons why there's there's quite a bit of uh, flipping back and forth in in voting patterns between the socialist party, the, the successor of the former ruling party, and uh, far right uh, anti immigration parties. So you would you would think those are polar opposites? No, not at the voter base. And a lot of this, I would imagine that uh, this Stalin romanticism in Russia is just a far more extreme form of that, that I doubt that they would talk about state-organized childcare or, or, or stuff like that. If you ask them what was so great about Stalin, it, it would be more a form of there's, there's this big, strong, impressive guy. Right. And that was the impression I got. You know, that still is pretty, pretty terrible. It's, but it's, at least it's it, bad enough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it, it would be even worse if that was also a longing for socialism. But uh, yeah, right. you're absolutely right. It's, it's bad enough as it sounds. It's a make Russia great again sentiment. So what we've got then is, I think, an equivocation among some people who say they favor socialism in that it's not really obvious that they're all defining socialism in the same way. Some of them protest that all we want is Sweden. But you know what? All these people who say all they want is Sweden, these are the same people who all the way up until it collapsed were telling us that Venezuela was real socialism and it was generating really good results. So they today they say, oh, we don't mean Venezuela, we mean Sweden. But you know what? You did mean Venezuela 10 minutes ago. So it's a little hard for me to believe that all you mean is Sweden. And then moreover, there's a new book, The Socialist Manifesto uh, here in the States that does 
call for uh, socialization of investment so that there wouldn't be you know venture capital there wouldn't be private banks that the state would decide would to allocate funds according to what it believes to be meritorious purposes well that's a lot more than sweden yeah yeah, yeah it's um you often get people who talk about Sweden or, or Denmark in the abstract, but who then go on to propose policies that, uh, that they, they would never dream of doing in Sweden or Denmark. Uh, this nationalization thing, okay, this has a bit of a, a Swedish counterpart. They had a policy like that in the 80s where they tried to transfer company ownership to I think it was to the workforce in, in that case, but they abandoned that pretty quickly. That was a short-term experiment and uh, had even the short-term bad outcomes. And the Swedes, being a, a pragmatic people, turned back on that pretty quickly. But no, we've, we've got the same phenomenon here that, that you get people uh, talking about. Sweden, but then once you ask them, okay, what, what do you actually want to do? What are your, your policy proposals? They come up with a list of things that no Swedish government would dream of doing. Whereas in recent years here, it's been much more common on the centre-right, among people on, on the centre-right, to come up with policy ideas that you could say have their parallels in, in, in Sweden. For example, uh, Sweden has something approaching an education voucher system. In a, in a way, it was proposed by Milton Friedman. I mean, they haven't gone there the whole hawk, but uh, they, they have. Uh, they've had some liberalisation there. It is relatively easy in in Sweden to set up a private school, and students who go there would then have the money following them. It's a money follows the, the pupil system, which is a little bit like a voucher. And uh, we've had uh, a, a centre-right government implementing a a watered-down version of that here. And that was extremely unpopular on, on the far left. And they're still talking about in abolishing that system as, as soon as they get the chance. But this is something where you can reasonably say, yes, this is, in this respect, we've become more like Sweden. We've borrowed policy ideas from Sweden. The same thing happened in, in healthcare, where we used to have a fairly rigid state monopoly system in healthcare here. It's now become a little bit more market-oriented. They're using internal market mechanisms. That's something which also comes from Sweden. Again, the socialist left absolutely hates it, and they would abolish it on as the, the minute they were given the chance to do it. So it's, it's pretty worthless to, uh, to, to big up Sweden if you then reject all the things that make Sweden work and just talk about some romantic idea of Sweden that you may have. Folks, just a quick break to tell you, weekend before last, I was at the Florida Libertarian Party State Convention. I gave the keynote address there. And of course, I was sporting my beautiful and extremely attractive movement or MVMT watch. And MVMT has an amazing array of choices. With over 2 million watches sold worldwide, they've solidified themselves as one of the fastest growing watch brands out there. I have the rose gold brown. So if you're a really crazy stalker type and you want to wear the exact watch I wear, it's the rose gold brown. The leather next to the gold of the watch makes for such a beautiful juxtaposition. I absolutely love it. And I'm going out of my way to make sure everybody sees it. <laughs> and it's a great timepiece too. If it weren't, I'd probably still be there giving my speech before the Libertarian Party. Remember, accessories like this make the perfect gift for people and even for yourself. But don't worry, you're not going to break the bank. MVMT watches start at just $95. You're guaranteed to find something you love without mortgaging the house. 
Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash woods. See why MVMT keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to mvmt.com slash woods. Join the movement. You explain in the book why it is that if you have these ambitions, namely the ambitions to uh, have some kind of collective control, if not state control, then who knows, some kind of democratic control. How's that going to work out except through some elite operating through a state, but some kind of collective control of the means of production that's not private, that it has to end violently. It has to end the way we've seen them all end. So this isn't just that they had bad people in charge, and if only we had had people more dedicated to the principles of the revolution, it would have worked better. What is the internal dynamic that leads these systems inexorably toward an oppressive, violent outcome? It's a number of things. Perhaps the most important one is that once you have a central plan in place, you have to be able to enforce compliance with the plan. You cannot allow local autonomy. You cannot allow local divergence from the plan because otherwise that would just mess it up completely. If a factory has a production target, then they have to produce that. They they can't then say, oh, no, actually, we want to do something completely different. Or if your labor has been allocated to a factory, you can't then say, oh, no, I want to change career. I want to move to a different city because, well, if a lot of people do that, then the plan becomes worthless. In a market economy, that's not a problem if, if people's preferences and, and, and uh, people's what people want to do with their lives changes because we have market prices which uh, create a balance there. You you would have, if, if loads of people move from one sector, from sector A to sector B, then wages in sector A would have to rise and uh, wages in sector B would, would have to fall. The, the price system would ensure that this economy moves towards an equilibrium again. If you don't have a mechanism like that, then you have to force people to comply with the plan. And that's the reason why the Berlin Wall was was built, that uh, they were trying to plan an economy, but on the basis of workforce numbers that were changing all the time because people were emigrating. So uh, that was making the plans worthless. You can't plan an economy under those circumstances. And, um, and that's also the reason why in, in the Soviet Union long before, in, in the 30s, when they were rolling out their first five-year plan, they abolished the freedom to move between cities, which you could do in, in Tsarist Russia and in the early Soviet Union. But as soon as they rolled out the first five-year plan, they abolished that system. They introduced a system of internal passports and internal residence permits where you needed permission from the state if you wanted to move from, say, Leningrad to Moscow. You couldn't just say, okay, I no longer like it here. I want to go somewhere else, do something else. That was no longer possible. And within that system, within a five-year plan, those restrictions are actually justifiable because the plan is in place. You are part of it. Right. The state cannot then allow you to do whatever you like. I can't imagine. I honestly, I'm trying to look at things from their point of view. I can't imagine how a democratic socialism could turn into anything other than a bunch of people ordering me around. I mean, what else is that? And okay, we had a vote before they ordered me around. Does that make it all right? If, if is that is it our general principle? You can vote to order people around, or is it just when this group of people convened under these circumstances vote? I mean, what, what do they have? Some magic dust sprinkled on them that makes their vote makes it legitimate to order people around? What, what's the theory behind this? 
Yeah, well, I, I agree. It would be, even if it were somehow possible to organize it in a democratic way, that would then still mean that would be the tyranny of the majority. You would still have an extremely powerful state that has the right to tell you what to do, what sector to work in, where to live, what to consume. It's it's just that that state would then have the backing of the majority, but majorities can be tyrannical as well. But even that can, cannot be done because... Ultimately, economic planning is extremely specialized and, and dry and um, and probably quite boring. And therefore, in the end, it will always be performed by an elite group. It's not something that you can easily involve the public in. So even on its own terms, this idea doesn't really stack up. It is already the case in, in our mixed economies that we're not really making much use of the uh, the avenues for public participation that we have. For example, here in our healthcare system, it is possible for people to get involved in their local area in, in healthcare as a, they have stakeholder groups. Don't remember what, what, what exactly they're called, but you can sign up at a doctor's surgery where, where they have discussions about what clinical priorities should be and so on. And almost nobody does that. Because these are uh, people like the idea in, in in the abstract that yeah this is this is run by the public for the public isn't it great, but uh, you don't want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it because then it quickly becomes very boring. We've had that as well with elected police commissioners. That that was something brought in by the last government. Where in in the beginning I thought well that's that's not such a bad idea. You, you can have different candidates. They have different priorities for policing, one that wants to focus more on robberies, one that wants to focus more on on burglary, on, on, on something else. And then but what happened is the uh, the turnout at, at these elections is abysmally low. Almost nobody takes part in that because well we're not yeah we're we're interested in the in, in the broad principles, but not to the degree that we would compare different platforms, different manifestos of different candidates, and then choose one. That's just not how it works. Right. I'm interested that you have a chapter, or rather a section, in which you talk about Western admirers of the GDR, of East Germany, because it's one thing to think about the 19... Late 19-teens when American journalists went over to the to what became the Soviet Union or even Maoists who had a, a romanticized view of what Mao was all about. But the problem with East Germany for Western apologists was that you had West Germany right there. So the same – people who were identical culturally, who who you couldn't – there was no way you could distinguish these people except they lived under a different system and the results were spectacularly different. And meanwhile, the – East Germans have to put up the Berlin Wall. What on earth could Westerners possibly find to admire about that system? Okay, that chapter is a bit of an outlier. Uh, for the reasons that you mentioned in the case of the GDR, there was never enthusiastic support. It had its Western supporters, but these were not, if you look at the quotes, it was they were not as starry-eyed as the people who admired Stalin in the 30s or the people who admired Castro and Mao in the 60s and, and 70s. They did not see the GDR as, as a paradise in the making. But it still had its its fans, far less so than, than uh, many of the other places and far less so than Venezuela a couple of decades later. But uh, it did have its, its fans. And... Uh, for for different reasons. In the beginning, that was because the GDR presented itself as the anti-fascist, the anti-Nazi state. Because in a Marxist interpretation, 
Nazism was uh, not a system in its own right, but simply the most brutal form of capitalism. So liberal democracy would be uh, capitalism in good times, capitalism putting a nice face on, and uh, fascism would be capitalism when the gloves are off, the no more Mr. Nice Guy form of capitalism. That was the Marxist interpretation. And therefore, the GDR government said that uh, since they no longer had capitalism, since they had no longer had private enterprise, they had addressed the root cause of Nazism. They were the part of Germany that made sure that this could never repeat itself, whereas they portrayed West Germany as, as latently fascist. Marxists were drawing attention to, to the fact that, uh, that some industrialists had supported Hitler, and that was, in, in their view, proof that that Nazism was ultimately a form of capitalism, although that's even on uh, even that is is actually nonsense. What what, what happened was was simply that uh, that once the Nazis were in power, of course, uh, businesses behaved opportunistically, but uh, they, they mostly supported center right parties before uh, the Nazis had come to power. But but that's just by the by. Uh, the Marxist interpretation was that, and um, some Western admirers uh, or supporters of, of the GDR believed that. They took that at face value. They said, right, okay, there are these these two different systems here. One of them really has come to terms with its past and is now creating a completely different society. They have some teething trouble. Uh, it's not all going well, but they're, they're getting there. Whereas the uh, the Western part, well, okay, they've, they're not comparable to, to the Nazis, but they, they still have the old industry leaders in place, and it could presumably go back to that. So there was that suspicion. Of course, then you had the problem that a couple of years later, in 1953, there was a, a massive popular uprising in Eastern Germany, which was then brutally crushed by a combination of GDR police forces and uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the uh, Soviet troops were still stationed there. And uh, some of the Western supporters then came up with all sorts of excuses, because that's, that's something that Western socialists always struggled with, the, the idea that, that you could have popular uprisings, uh, discontent in a people's state. Because according to, to their ideas, this is a place where the people are in charge, the people as a whole. So therefore, there can't be any discontent. The people can't protest against themselves. The working class can't protest against itself. And they had to come up with excuses saying uh, these are either these are sponsored by the CIA, they are sponsored by some West German neo-Nazi group, and uh, you have to come up with some conspiracy, and that's that's uh, what, what happened. And that's those are usually the periods when uh, this this admiration for a socialist regime becomes angry and defensive. This is the, the, the stage two that I'm talking about. You get the hopeful version in, in the beginning, that's the honeymoon period. And then when it turns ugly, then Western supporters have to somehow rationalize that and, and make excuses for it. And uh, that's that's uh, when you get these stories that uh, perfectly uh, normal people who are, are protesting just because they they don't want to live in a dictatorship or because they're just protesting against shortages. Uh, they're, they're, they're unhappy with something, but they have no um, no sinister motives, must then be demonized. These must be fascist stooges, imperialists of, or disgraced former elites. And we see the, the exact same thing happening now with Venezuela, where they're having protests all the time, have been for 
five years or so or more. And uh, in some of the, the Western press, you get people trying to somehow portray these as uh, a part of a sinister conspiracy. Well, let me wrap up with this question. Given what we know about the history of socialism, it seems a bit flippant for people to say, oh, we don't mean that kind. Oh, don't worry about it. I mean, we don't mean any of that. We, we, we have this, this new and improved version or we have the original version that was mysteriously hijacked every single time it was tried. You know, if we were dealing with some kind of food, let's say, and it just kept poisoning us every single time, your first instinct would not be to say, well, that, let's think of some excuse for why it went poisonous in that case or in that case. You would probably just steer clear of the thing. So something is odd here that people keep getting drawn back to it. What do you think, just in a short, just visceral kind of response, what do you think at root is driving – it's not an intellectual examination of the ideas. Maybe for some people it is. What's drawing people back to something like this that's so toxic in practice? What could be driving it? Well, there is a lot to be said for the for the theory that socialism is hardwired into us, that our economic intuitions are all fairly socialist. We often extrapolate from the kind of economy that our ancestors, our hunter-gatherer ancestors were living in, where economic activity is, is collective activity. You have the group. Uh, deliberately, consciously collaborating, doing something together and then sharing the spoils. And that is a, a political act. And um, the kind of economy, modern economy that we have today, a, a much more complex economy guided by anonymous uh, mechanisms, is just counterintuitive. There's something in us that militates against that. And that's that would be also the reason why Almost no free marketeer, at least I don't know any free marketeers who have always been free marketeers. Free uh, appreciation for free markets is an acquired taste. It's something that you learn about by reading Milton Friedman or Friedrich Hayek. But it's it's not that you just feel instinctively that you are a, a free marketeer. It's something that you convert to later. Socialism is just a default opinion. You don't have to read Marx and Engels to become a socialist. You you can have socialist instincts and then you can later read Marx and Engels to express it in uh, more clever sounding ways. Right, right. And I think that is generally what happens. And not to mention, not to say that people around us or the establishment in the US is Marxist. I think that's too simplistic to look at it that way. But they will say things that superficially do sound like they're at least in sympathy with uh, if not violent revolution, which Marx didn't necessarily say in all cases was necessary, but that's a separate thing. Uh, but but you can at least see a strain of thought in within the, let's say, the media, political, and academic classes, whereby if really, really pushed, they might say that, that the communists, uh, at least some of them had good intentions and they were kind of like progressives in too much of a hurry. There is some of that. So you would be validated in your socialist instincts. Whereas if you're a market guy, you're not validated in those in any way. Like you either have to be an extremely independent thinker or you have to be a reader. 
You have to thirst after knowledge. Or the third thing, which is how most people kind of fall into it, you have to be a practical person who lives in the real world and has a job or owns a business. And then you can see without having to read Mises and Hayek what the problems with government intervention are. So the book is Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies by Christian Nemitz. Is there a a website uh, you'd like to direct people to or any final words you have for us? Well, you can find it on our website, iea.org.uk, and check it out. You can download it for free. That's really crazy. I mean, you guys, it's, do you, I assume you accept donations at Institute of Economic Affairs? Yeah, we're, we're entirely funded by donations. Okay, so listen, here, here's what you do, folks. You go get this free book, all right, and then you send them a donation because that way you say to them, you're right, a free society does work, and my donation is evidence of that that it indeed can work. Um, And you're going to read this and you're going to feel compelled to give a donation. Yep, sounds great to me. Okay, good. I I thought I'd interrupted you so I wanted to give you a chance. Okay, great. Uh, Christian, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for this this book. As I say, it was so much more than I was expecting. And it's really well done. It's got a lot of information people are going to want. And to see how many people in particular at the time, were cheering different regimes. And I have no doubt that later on, some of these same people would say, oh, that wasn't real socialism. But you know, you were pretty excited about it at the time, so you could have fooled us. Anyway, thanks so much for this important work. We appreciate it. No, thanks for the invitation. All right, folks, before we finish up this episode, I need to offer a mea culpa. Last week, I had Gene Epstein on, and we got talking about Dave Smith, our friend, the comedian and podcaster. And Dave is going to be debating Nick Sarwark, who's the chairman of the Libertarian National Committee, at the Soho Forum, which Gene moderates. And Gene said that Dave told him that he ran this idea by me and you know, said, would it be all right? Would you, how would you feel if I were to debate Nick in a public forum? And I told him that would be fine. And when Gene recounted that story to me, I didn't remember it. I did not remember that happening because I was thinking like the past previous week or two or something. But it turns out, so so I joked about this on the show. I said, look, that never happened. <laughs> Dave just made that up. But it turns out now Dave did not contact me or anything. It was my own recollection. I suddenly thought to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, we had that lunch in New York. He did say this to me. He did say this. So that was fake news on the Tom Woods show when I joked and said that Dave had never in fact run this idea by me. Not that he would need to. But just saying, Gene said that he had, and I said that he hadn't. Well, he did, all right? You can rely on Dave Smith more than you can rely on Tom Woods, I think is the moral of the story. So just so you know, Dave's name is officially cleared, and now you can go back, you can set aside your protest, your boycott of Dave Smith's Part of the Problem podcast. Set that aside, go right on back there with a clear conscience, because as you knew from the beginning, Dave is a good man. All right, tomorrow I've got some interesting material taken from my appearance at the Libertarian Party Convention of Florida. And, you know, I thought it was pretty good. And I think it's stuff that anybody would want to stand up and cheer for. But I'll let you be the judge of that tomorrow. So make sure you subscribe to the show, tomwoods.com slash iTunes, so you get all these episodes automatically delivered to your device. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.